0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Welcome to M Pavilion 2019, designed by Glenn Merkitt. It's great to have you all here today. Um, I'm just gonna stand at the back here so I'm not sort of causing feedback and things, so excuse that. Um, I'd like to just uh, commence that uh, acknowledging the traditional custodians, the land which we're meeting today, that's the Yalikut Willem of the Boon people. The Boon are one of the five major language groups of the greater Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and any who are with us here today. Now, M Pavilion has a four-month program of free public events that each year has become more and more diverse in, in its engagement with the community. Something that we're very excited about. An important part of that is the Expression of Interest program, where we... Try our very best to be as obvious as possible to people who don't know that there's an opportunity to join our program, and as part of that, this year, it's really exciting to have Public Street participate in our program through the expression of interest, um, and present with, to uh, present today an event: um, urban subvert urban subversion. Um, I think that we're going to find there's a lot of future opportunities between us and Public Street and the, uh, the work that Rachel's doing uh, in exploring the use of public spaces. So I'm really ex- looking forward to today's talk. And I'd uh, encourage you to keep an eye on our website, because I'm sure we'll see more. Um, and while you're here with us today, you might like to grab a program and look at other events that are coming up between now and March the 22nd. So thanks very much.
2: Thank you. Hi, welcome. Thanks for coming down despite this weird weather. Um, And thank you for the introduction. I'd just like to take a moment to um, also reflect that um, we're meeting today and also a lot of the practice we'll be discussing today also takes place on um, unceded land. Yet here we are getting to subvert on it um, and that's something we should try and reflect on in our practice where possible. Um, Not where possible, at all times actually. Um, So yeah, so welcome. We're really excited to have everyone here today. We've got a really interesting panel um, we've got Kel Glesser here, Claire McCracken, Larissa McFarlane and Chantelle Winter. Um, and I will be co-hosting today with my dear friend Zane. <laughs> um, and so in putting together this panel we were um, kind of thinking who do we know that does something subversive and, and does something really interesting and, and by subversion we're kind of looking at altering urban space or the urban experience, um, hopefully for the better. Um, and and it, it was interesting, though, because in a lot of the discussions we started having preliminary about urban subversion, a lot of the people we were discussing with or actually looking at as examples didn't explicitly identify their work as subversive. Um, but in conversation, it, it's come out to be subversive, which is really interesting because I I would, you know, fathom a guess that there's people listening who might be in a similar category who have a practice who haven't necessarily thought of it as subversive, but it is doing something subversive. Um, and so we kind of hope that a takeaway would be to feel inspired to do that um, from today and so uh, just um we'll be talking for an hour we'll have a Q&A and then afterwards we'll be moving to the grass it is dry I checked to do a workshop um and our lovely speakers will be facilitating and we'll be kind of breaking into small groups um and working on our own subversion so we would really encourage you to hang around for the second hour if you can um, and, but I do also just ask, uh, please don't flash photography throughout the event for our speakers. Um, but yeah, otherwise, if we, we can just dive in. Um, I'd like to start, if you guys are happy, to talk about your practice and how it is subversive. <laughs> just to kick it off.
3: With me? Yeah. Okay. Is that? Yep. <laughs> My name's Kel. I am, uh, currently work with Women of Melbourne Parkour and I'm also a Director of Melbourne Emotions. So I'm a parkour coach and work teaching people physical skills to interact with urban spaces in a, in a playful way and also to feel that they have uh, every right to do so. So in, in the sense of thinking of parkour as a, a subversive um, practice, it's for me it's always been that the, the city around us is designed for... Uh, I suppose, efficiency, and for the operation of um, capitalist systems uh, through the behavioural norms of people. And parkour is one way to uh, interrupt those, to subvert those and make it something, make it a space for us to play and to exist as um, as humans and animals. That's me.
0: Can I interrupt and yep. just ask everyone to speak into the microphone so I can hear? Oh,
3: was I? Thank oh, you. That's too much. <laughs>
0: Um, My name's Claire McCracken
4: and uh, I think I'm accidentally subversive. Um, So uh, I grew up in a off-grid in a communal living situation in regional Victoria Um, and I always loved being an artist and I I adore living in the city now but uh, I'm really interested in reaching diverse and different audiences and I'm painfully aware of how Um, uh, how difficult it is for many ordinary citizens to walk within the white cube, even the NGV, with all of the work they do around audience participation. So um, since my undergraduate, I've made site-specific works in public space. I often work in the suburbs. um, And uh, so I guess that, from an artist's perspective, that can make me subversive in that these are not um, the standard spaces, uh, ..that artists might be practising in, although increasingly they are. Um, and I'll often do, um, do work around issues and, and politics in, the, in those, those spaces. And they, generally speaking, make sense to me that I would be addressing them. And I'm constantly surprised by the Murdoch press... Uh, as reaction to my work, but yes, if you if you point out that there's no street sta- street signs in inner city Melbourne named after a woman unless they're a queen, turns out shock docs are just going to get really angry at you. Like what next? You're going to change a street name?
0: So I'm accidentally subversive.
2: <laughs>
0: um, I am. I'm Larissa McFarlane and. Um, I want to acknowledge we're also on the stolen land of the Kulin Nation, and as a proud disabled woman, I also want to acknowledge all the disability activists and advocates who have um, uh, fought for rights so that I can be here today speaking to you. Um, So I'm a visual artist, and I became an artist through acquiring a disability, a brain injury, 21 years ago. Um, I... Ten years after that, I was able to access um, education at TAFE, and art school, and I learned printmaking. And then about five, six years ago, I started making work in the street, um, specifically because I wanted to explore my disability experience and identity, and I wasn't really feeling I could do that in the the contemporary art, visual arts world. So, um, yeah, by mistake, I became a street artist, Um, and... Uh, through exploring disability identity of my own, I then broadened it out to work with my community and to try to look at ways of building um, a sort of cultural pride in our community. And that led to um, some disability pride murals, which I discovered are quite challenging and uh, to the dominant. Yeah, people um, sort of don't quite know what to make of them, but also love them, but also find it really challenging. Yeah.
5: Um, my name's Chantal Winter and um, I I do uh, lots of things... ...but the main sort of thing I like to do is um, guided walks. So, accidentally subversive again. Um, and uh, those guided walks are usually relating to a theme... Um, ...or a subject matter, which um, I'm interested in... ...in really uh, women's roles... Um, In society and so those walks often um relate relate to that and um and so yeah i've been doing guided walks for for many years now um and uh yeah i'm i suppose it's also a way of um a sense of ownership of um or reclaiming a sense of ownership of um land but not ownership like to own it, but um, I suppose to travel through it, and um, and as a woman too to be able to do that. So um, yeah, as as the the guided walks have progressed um, over the years, that's um, that's been a, a, a concern, I suppose, um, and also acknowledging too that we are on unceded lands and how to um, how to uh, sort of you know, move through that and be aware of that and make other people um, aware of that too and that, um, you know, First Nations people are still um, uh, subject to um, colonisation and it's ongoing. So, yeah, that's, that's really my practice, Guided Walks.
6: Thanks, everyone. That was really interesting. Is that loud enough? Yeah. Um, so the first question we had was about um, when you're doing work in public spaces sometimes people will encounter the work accidentally or come across it and other times it will be more deliberately um, and I was wondering if anybody had any thoughts on how that it might affect people's experience with what you do or whether you had a preference for you know, accidental encounters or deliberate ones?
0: So the artworks that I started making in the street and continue today are about, um, they're actually images of me or liner cuts of me, a life-size doing handstands. And this is because it's part of my own um, management of my disability. They bring me all these amazing pain relief and dress trauma and joy. So it's a really important thing for me and I do them every day and many times a day and no one sees me. So I started putting them in the street as a way of trying to get a visual on me and reclaiming space that was safe for me and marking out the things I do. But also, um, I would write messages in them about my disability and why I was doing them. So, I often think my work is misunderstood in the sense, well, not misunderstood, but it's seen as this sort of beautiful, oh, there's somebody doing a handstand, there's lots of joy there. And so, I think that's how they're interpreted, which is great, I think, now, today, because I think that if, if when when we see the word disability or disabled, we automatically put people into a, a box and a category and we, have, we don't have very nuanced ways of seeing disability. And so to sort of understand the work and then maybe later on, maybe it might be months, years, I don't know, you might find out that actually the work is about disability, might then give the, you know, that word more meaning. Yeah, so works well for me at the moment.
4: Uh, I think it's enormously rewarding as an artist because I think um, you really control the meaning of your work in the gallery context and you have this very neat didactic that with the title of the work that often guides the way that people think about it. Whereas in public space, you can't control that interpretation. And that often means that people find things in your work that you could never imagine. And... um, A couple of years ago, I did a series of really long walks through Melbourne for Federation Square, reclaiming the footpath of Melbourne for women after um, one of the unfortunately relatively common violent crimes we had against um, an Australian woman, where I walked from Federation Square to the airport and I walked from Federation Square to the Melbourne ports and 30 kilometres up the Yarra. But I did it as a dandy tortoise, so I did it slowly. And this is referencing the, um, the 19th century f- um, concept of the flaneur, which was a very masculine idea of being this kind of... Uh, observer of other people in public space. Um, and Baudelaire said that you should walk the pace of a turtle. So there was this, or tortoise, so there was this kind of brief moment in Paris where dandies leashed up t- tortoises and started to walk through the arcades, which I've always loved. So I reclaimed that and I became this kind of half-endangered species. And for me, you know, it was wrapped up in this kind of art history and French occupation of public space and gender studies, but actually the group of people that really embraced that work were disability advocates, and I got these really beautiful emails from people who... Because I then had a residency in public space where this short film played of me doing these works where people were like, "Uh, thank you so much for talking about moving through public space slowly... Um, and I just never would have guessed that the work would be embraced by that group of people had I not brought it out in public space and had that experience. So, um, and, you know, I have many other examples of that, but I think as an artist it's enormously rewarding to um, get non-arts trained, diverse people viewing your work because you have no idea what's, what's hidden in there and what other ideas will be teased out by, you know, the incredibly intelligent public.
2: Thank you. Um, I was just wondering for those of you that work collaboratively or work with other people, you know how you find that process as opposed to working um, some of the time solo through collaboration.
3: Um, well, I am uh, often doing that in the in the context of as a teacher or a coach, and then in another context, which is um, parkour training, um, has a jamming culture where you just go and play with. Friends in space. So, on the one hand, there's um, there's a, a teaching format where you're trying to impart, uh, you know, safe practices, or trying to uh, bring to light ways that you can interact. And then uh, another way that that we work collaboratively, in a sense, is a, is through through play and through um, play without without a goal. Um, and so that's a really important part of. Of expanding uh, what you can imagine, basically, and what you can uh, see in the space around you. Yeah. Um, for me, I uh, with
5: the guided walks, I'll often engage artists to respond to the concept or idea, and that's really um, that's a really great part of of it because um, you know. It's really in their hands to to interpret the concept or idea and and what comes out is always um, you know really interesting and um and surprising too which is i mean expected from artists right so <laughs> um, and and engaging with the um, with the uh, people on the walk so yeah I think collaboration's really important and makes things more interesting, I suppose, than um, you know if it's solo, solo based.
0: Um, because some of my work is um, sort of community-based work um, and working with community. Um, well, yeah, I, it, I, that's you need to work with people because um, the, that informs the work and that changes the work. And um, I will say it also. I mean, it's so important making work about disability experience and pride with the community because it brings awareness to so many of the access and barriers to people being able to participate and um, make or view work. Um, and just in simple things like, you know, if the accessible tram doesn't turn up that day, then you can't get to the event. Um, yeah, so it's, it, that, all that stuff really informs the way that you might, I might make the work. Yep.
4: For me, um, I love collaborations because they allow me to work at a much larger scale. So I kind of have a practice where I create work on my own and then I have a practice which follows a more theatre model um, where I'll have a producer and a group of creative practitioners from sound designers um, through to audience, uh, people that are dramaturgs, people that are really great at designing experiences for audiences and that allows me to take over large-scale abandoned buildings and do really huge kind of immersive powerful works so something like taking over a whole suburban house or um, on Cockatoo Island I did one around the recycling um, industry with a collaborative group it was produced by Brianna McNish um, and in that case we took over this vast munitions shed that was kind of 36 meters by 20 meters so inconceivably large something I could never take on on my own
6: I wanted to ask uh, how you come up with ideas, like what's your process? If anyone wants to talk about that.
0: (laughs) I will say the practice. I think that making art and making work requires practice and some of that practice leads to something and sometimes it doesn't, but you have to do the practice and through doing that practice come the ideas and you know, and then it somehow magically happens and you go, oh, where did it come from? But it came from those hours of practice. Uh, There's two
4: things that are really important to me, I think. The first one is spending as long as possible in the sites that I'm creating work for. So I get very frustrated by short time frames, and the longer you give me, the stronger that work is going to be and the more kind of contextual it's going to be. Um, But the other thing is reading. I, I read an enormous amount And without even realising, it's shaping my ideas and my concept of the world. And um, I particularly read a lot of urban theory and and things outside my discipline. I actually don't read a lot of art theory. Um, Yeah, a lot of of cultural geography and things uh, are are very kind of dominantly informing my processes.
2: Yeah, great. Um, I just wanted to touch on uh, the topic of temporality and I think everyone's work... Um, has a distinct end point different different scales, but most of most of the work is geared to being it for a moment and then it's gone um and so I just wonder you know how how you feel about about that uh, you know as a framework and about what's left when your subversion is done and dusted
3: <laughs> sorry, I have half a thought i'm just yeah. um
2: it was a, it was a big, I can go
4: first. <laughs> uh, just because I think as a public artist you think about this all the time because you're looking at the mega commissions. Um, so I started as a permanent public artist and I have three permanent works um, but I'll probably never make another one again and one of my issues with them is how I can create a work that is dynamic enough to change with our incredibly rapidly shifting city and you know, we're 5 million, we're heading towards 10 million. I, I just don't... I don't think I, am, uh, I have the ability to create works that flex with, with the shifts of, of urban environments, nor, do, nor am I really interested in leaving indelible marks. I actually, um, I actually think there's something very powerful in making things that, um, that some people remember and many will not, um, and, and they become part of the narrative of that place over time.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would just say, yeah, that I think um, that I'm changing, my work's changing and uh, my ideas change and I want to have space for that to, to change. And particularly, I'm a bit conflicted about this because when, I'm, um, when I led the Disability Pride mural, the first time it was about um, making a work which was just, you know, me and a bunch of my friends, there were 30 of us, and we don't represent the disability community. We were just putting snapshots of our lives onto this big wall. But then when it was destroyed, um, which unfortunately happened a week later when the council destroyed it, but we then had to fight very hard to put it back up. But I wish, almost wish we had made it permanent because we had to fight so hard to get it back. Um, but at the same time, I do want there to be space for... Um, other people to come and change that narrative, write different stories of, um, of disability pride, disability identity. So, yeah.
2: Mm. So, I just, um, you know, I, w- I want to... Sorry. <laughs> For me, subversive practice, um, you know, it's, it's a really great kind of insurgence tool and an opportunity for kind of like bottom-up resistance um, and an opportunity for people to kind of take back or take up space but you know while fully aware that inherent in it is is, is privilege and it's the you know ability to feel comfortable and that you have the right to take up space in the first place Um, and so I just you know so there's this real tension there and I just wonder how that you know how that impacts your practice and how we or anyone that's working in the public realm can do a better job around
0: this? (laughs) Can you repeat the question? Because I just was drifting off completely on the last one question still. (laughs) No, no,
2: that's totally fine. So I was just, you know, I guess it's the the tension that exists between um, taking up space as this kind of radical act of reclamation, but then also the kind of, that you have to have privilege to be able to feel comfortable to take up space in the first place. And so I was just wondering how this impacts your practice, you know, if at all, and, you know, what we can do better for those working in the public realm around this. Yeah, I mean,
4: I just think it's incredibly complex and my thinking is changing every day. And um, particularly my, you know, I'm I'm born in the early 1980s, so my understanding of... um, of average, Aboriginal uh, sovereignty and, and you know, my complicitness in um, colonialism over, in my case, six generations. You know, th- those things are... Uh, I'm still wor- very much working through those complexities. But I guess one of the ways that I can do that is as a lecturer in public in public art and, you know, I was very lucky to have Larissa as a student and I, I guess one of the ways that I can improve access to public space because still when I'm on panels looking at public art proposals, it's extraordinary how many applications come from men um, and white men And look, a lot of their work is excellent, but I would love to see just as many women and I would love to see more people of colour applying as well. So as a lecturer, what I can do is really empower people to understand that their voice is incredibly important and add something new, interesting and dynamic to to public discourse um, and give them the the confidence to then go out and approach those. And um, as a researcher in this field, I can develop um, projects that... Have mentoring built into them, so that they are not asking for artists to take all the risk and to come up with a polished, well-engineered work. But they take uh, hold artists' hands and take them through the process, and just start at that ideas stage. Which means that you can get more emerging artists. You can get um, artists that are less confident working in those spaces. But I in no way have all the answers, and I think my mind is constantly changing and I'm constantly making mistakes as well and, and you know, and, and trying to improve my own practices.
3: Yeah, I think we've got a similar sort of approach to um, bringing more marginalised communities into parkour and um, urban uh, physical disciplines. It's the really the basis of it for us has been about building communities where people can see themselves participating. Um, we as a sort of discipline uh, hamstrung by um, YouTube culture that features only uh, white teenage boys, basically. Um, so part of what we've aimed to do is build communities that both represent people who aren't that format. So you do need to see someone like you uh, to feel that, that, that that's an opportunity you can take advantage of. Um, and also bringing bringing our ideas to, to communities and seeing if it's something that interests them. So that's what, what our project has kind of been.
0: Um, I'll just add to that. I think it's uh, following on from what you said, but I think um, inviting people, looking, looking at where you're at and looking at the people who are missing and the people who aren't there and um, reaching out to, this is what I'd like to see sort of institutions do, or even myself, but reaching out to people and inviting them into the space. Um, uh, Because, yeah, and also when when you get all those applications, it's often... um, I think also as as people, um, just community members, it's about us going to our friend who might be, you know, um, culturally diverse or Indigenous or disabled and saying, you know, you should apply for that. Um, really supporting our friends who aren't in the space and, inv- you know, encouraging them to apply as well because that helps. Mm.
5: Yeah, I find um, as, a you know, doing guided walks, I don't also want to go into spaces to say, you know, I'm going to enlighten you or, you know, um, I'm going to expose you to the arts or, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of that and and... ...but also, you know, wanting to invite people that may not... ...not invite, but, um, you know, uh, have people participate in guided walks... ...that may not have um, in the past and, um, yeah. But it's a sort of um, a line that, yeah, it's something I think about a lot... ...not to be the sort of enlightened leader of a guided walk sort of thing... (laughs)
4: There is just another one kind of thing that I I think is increasingly um, sneaking into, particularly briefs for artists, which is this idea that you can't produce anything for public space that's political. Mm. So a a huge amount of the briefs I'm reading at the moment say, you must not create something that's political, it must not offend anyone. Well, look, that kind of means that if you're a member of the LGBTQI community, you can't make it work. You can't be represented. So we need, you know, we are only going to get one narrative if we are producing... It makes me furious. We're only going to get one narrative if we have those kind of clauses in briefs. And actually, the role of the producer and the role of the creator is to sustain that heat when it comes when you do make political work and to defend artists and to defend speech and make sure that we are having these conversations in public space. Um, And curators and producers are not doing their job if they are just simply asking for non-political work because what are they doing? I mean, they're basically writing the brief and walking away.
5: Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because um, I've also noticed a lot of local governments uh, are setting that sort of brief that, um, you know, it can't be... And, and it's taking the line of, oh, you know, yeah, you can't be offensive and, um, or political and, and that's a re- really dangerous um, sort of road to go down. And I think you're right, you know, we have an obligation as producers to question that and to, you know, yeah, make a stand.
4: And, you know, there's lots of things already in public space that I find deeply offensive. Like, when I walk past another graffiti mural of a beautiful model, like, you know, that, that's offensive to me. But you're going to commission that as being apolitical, but it's actually deeply political.
3: <laughs> Not to mention all the um, statues of Captain Cook and whatnot. That's
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, sort of ta- on tangent tangentially to that, I was heartened this week to see that um, the exhibition I think up in Queensland that has recently been closed down, the council, a councillor mm. took offence at the artwork of can you remind, does anybody Ab- remember? Abdul. Um. Abdul, Abdul Abdullah. Ab- yeah. And um, and uh, But it's toured on to the, it's going to be going to the next council in Noosa and um, they have come out and said we're definitely putting this on we're not going to
6: succumb to that pressure Um, yeah does anyone have any kind of practical advice for for example with a local council you know dealing with those kind of demands being put on work
4: um when i find myself on the other side quite regularly through university research projects so i'll often write briefs and, and my comment to them is would you like bad press or no press at all you know like you, you are never going to get good press for public art from certain areas, you know, like the amount of public art um, articles that start with the vault was controversial, you know, we're still, we're, <laughs> we're still back there. So um, I say push it, get the bad press and deal with it and have, you know, a system in place to deal with it rather than producing another work that goes completely unnoticed and completely ignored because it's kind of... It, it's basically design, it's beautiful... It has very little to say about its place and and doesn't generate a discourse or a conversation.
0: What was your question again? Because I think I Uh, had an answer.
6: Yeah, I was just asking about like when you get these briefs that are very apolitical, um, what can you do about it? Or what would you recommend doing?
4: I also submit political work to them. I never get up, but I just do it. (laughs)
6: So I had another question. One of my topics that I'm really interested in that Rachel and I have discussed many times was or is about um, in urban design discussions, there's often a lot of talk about encouraging people to feel ownership over space. But I often wonder myself whether talking about custodianship or responsibility could be better. Of course, also ownership could mean different things to different people. But did anybody have any thoughts on that? like is f- would you want an outcome of your work to be that people or yourself feel ownership
4: I think maybe uh, 10 15 years ago I would have said yes but I think increasingly I have a huge problem with that word um, uh, I was at a um, urban conference in Denmark recently and uh, my people are Danish so I feel like I can um, I can say this with confidence and we were talking about perfect public space and the designers were like, a perfect public space is this, it is quiet, it is clean. (laughs) And the rest of us, you know, there was a Cuban sitting beside me and they were like, is a perfect public space quiet? You know, like, so I think the problem with terms like ownership or trying to even design with everyone... ...in mind is that it's completely impossible. Um, and what ends up happening is the dominant culture takes over. And, you know, Denmark is multicultural... ...and they do have people from other cultures that would like... ...who are, who are not informed by Lutheran beliefs... ...and would perhaps not like a public space that is quiet. But the dominant culture wins when we kind of... ...we, we talk about these absolute ideas of belonging and, or, and ownership.
3: Um, I have a sort of specific experience with that sort of thing but there's a lot of talk in the world currently about um, currently got to the stage of parkour being almost um, mainstream enough to build parkour parks and build um, spaces within urban um, uh, environments that are specifically for the training of parkour and um, don't get me wrong they're fantastic fun they're wonderful to play in but there's something about um, giving... It's like giving a community enough ownership over a small chunk that they won't ever make a claim on the larger environment. It's like, and this is something that happened with skating in the 80s, that once, they, once you know, councils started building skate parks, um, suddenly everyone could say, don't skate on the street, we built a skate park for you. So there's something about um, ownership that I'm uncomfortable with on a number of levels. And one of them is that it atomizes our um, behaviour and our communities. And essentially, ideally, what we uh, want to have is, is public spaces that are flexible enough to have quiet and loud and um, to encourage people to uh, feel... Comfort in doing whatever it is that they want to do, so that's kind of my approach to puck or park specifically. I know the question wasn't about that, but it came up in my home in my mind um, uh,
0: My mind has got too many ideas floating around i can 't grasp them. Um, the word ownership is really problematic um, and other words are Seem more appropriate, but I think um, because it, because with it there needs to be people need to feel a space to belong, and also there's a sense of responsibility that we I would like to see um, nurtured. I suppose that we um, if when people feel like they belong or that they have some sort of you know belonging in this space, then they can also feel responsible for this space and responsible for making keeping it. Keeping it a safe space. Um, I also think that was one of the big reasons why. Um, what led me to initiate the first disability pride mural, which is in Footscray, um, was the, to create a space where disabled people could feel like they were able to be hang out there without feeling like they're taking up space or that, you know there's always a negative energy it was to create a space where you could you know go hey this is my space you can come and join me if you want yeah Yeah, and I,
4: I actually think there's real merit in that and you know I, I should say me talking about not ownership is coming from like a, an able-bodied white woman so it, it is a far more problematic term in that context than it is um, if, if, if you're non-neurotypical or any of the, the other things that um, you know, in our, in our kind of capitalist cities push, push you to the margins, yeah
0: And as part of that mural we did, um, we did also acknowledge that it was stolen land um, that it was made on, um, made on that land and there's several references um, to First Nations people disabled people within the mural as well so um, yeah, we were really trying to really be aware of whose space it is and how we can all be there
6: Chantal, your work's a bit different because you're moving through space. You know, it's not in a single location. Did you have any thoughts on that?
5: Yeah. Yeah. Like what Larissa was talking about, the the sense of belonging, I think, um, because it seems that there's so much, you know, living under capitalism, it's so individual and um, for me... ...doing these guided walks is a sense of belonging... ...a sense of sort of knowing your community... ...but also not... ...you don't have to make a mark necessarily, you know... ...it doesn't have to be a public, um, you know, sculpture or... um, ...moving through space is, um, yeah, is still... ...everyone can do that, you know, um, pretty freely but... But actually, thinking of that, um, you do need to think who can walk through public space and and um, and whose space is it. And it may be public space, but um, say, you know, if you walk down Collins Street and hung out in front of one of the major banks, you'd be asked to move on even though it's a public space and you're on the footpath. So I think those sort of questions need to be thought of too, um, that... It may be public, but it, it's not. And also, who who are you? Are you, um, say, in Footscray, um, a man of African descent, you can't walk the same way as a, you know, white man um, or a white, um, yeah, boy. And that, that happens. You see it all the time. So, yeah, I think those questions of um, who can walk space and where... Um, is something that uh, needs to be well people think about. Yeah. That's where data on
4: people's sense of safety in public space, I think, is really vital, because it, it, it often really alarms me when I, I read it. Like Plan International did some research a year and a half ago that found that women in inner-city Melbourne feel less safe to walk the streets than women in Karachi. So, therefore, women are limiting their access to public space and their movement through it. And of course that would shift depending on cultural diversity and and linguistic diversity as well.
2: Great, thank you. Um, Just to move to uh, more practical considerations, but still on a similar topic. And also not to, um, we're not encouraging illegal behavior, I just wanna flag that. But I just wonder how much um, seeking formal approval, be it from council, land or property owners, security, whoever, factors into your work and and (laughs) you kind of negotiate that
3: um Um, it it doesn't um much we do have uh run-ins occasionally with um security and whatnot who will say can you please move on or get down off that you'll hurt yourself or um all of that uh I'm currently working on a project uh, that has, was started by Ukemi project and parkour outreach in Scotland It's called movement card it's a really interesting idea they've they've built they've made a, a business card you can keep in your wallet that basically outlines your rights to public space so that if you are um, uh, approached by police by security, you have a list of all the uh, the rights that you have and your obligations as well. So, uh, just started working on a version of that in Melbourne that I hope will um, will be useful for people. Uh, yeah. if we don't we don't s- ask for permission, but we do encourage um, you know respectful behaviour with when you are getting asked to move on. I'll always explain and stand my ground to a point and then after that it 's just not worth it anymore there 's always somewhere else to play but i do I do feel that putting up a bit of resistance um, when confronted with this idea that i 'm not allowed to play um, is worthwhile every time even though it gets boring sometimes
5: um,
3: for me i'd try and
5: um well, you know, if if it involves, um, you know, council property or, um, or private property, I just try and uh, avoid it or <laughs> um, try not... Uh, or, you know, have slight sort of conversations here and there. Um, but, yeah, I, with a lot of the work I do, I don't have to actually get permission that often. So, yeah. And if I do... I think about it and then think, oh, no, we're only going to be passing through. So, I'd rather, like, keep under the radar, really, that stuff, if I can.
0: Um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting to reflect on this because uh, when I first uh, started pasting up, um, I did it at midnight <laughs> in the dark <laughs> and, you know, I uh, had all the adrenaline going because I thought – and then I was like, this is way too hard um, – and I think I worked out that, you know, if you wear an orange vest, you know, a, a jacket and, you know, I'm a middle-aged woman, I can sort of... nobody, everybody ignores me. Um, um, but I've also learnt that, yeah, to weigh up whether, um, whether it's worth asking or not. There's some places where it, it technically is, you know, not appropriate, but it's illegal, but um, they're probably never going to notice <laughs> um, because they never visit this building. Um, yeah, so I suppose I'm a bit more relaxed about it and I also... I also know I mean, my work, it, 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 whilst I'm not, like... I'm i am leaving something behind, but it is something that could be removed. So, that's always my back, back door.
4: I'm a total chicken. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, just in awe of anyone that can <laughs> push these boundaries because, um, yeah, I've always been a good
0: girl. <laughs> You're so not a good girl. <laughs> uh,
6: another kind of practical question was just um, also on risk, but more about, um, you know, often when we're doing creative things, it can be a really private process. Uh, if you're working alone or uh, as an artist, a visual artist or a writer or something. Uh, but in the public space, there's kind of, um, you know, you're putting yourself out there more. Um, you know, you're kind of vulnerable to criticism in a way that perhaps with other creative creative um, practices you're not. Um, w- did anybody have any kind of practical advice on that about putting yourself out there?
4: It's just really tough. I mean, being an artist is like a life of rejection anyway. You know, there'll be a there'll be one grant and 500 of you will put 70 hours into producing the grant application. Um, but I haven't got my skin hasn't got any thicker throughout the process. I, I still find it all incredibly yeah incredibly hard and I find criticism difficult. Having said that, um, it definitely makes my practice better. Um, the cr- type of criticism I find the most challenging is actually within back at university, within the institution because I'm doing my PhD at the moment and I find um, when I'm critiqued by people that expect that art goes in the white cube and they're, they're just fundamentally critical of my audiences and, and my processes, that, that, that makes me quite fiercely, fiercely angry and frustrated. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any mechanisms for coping other than to say that um, often what's being said to you is helpful for the next project.
0: I'm currently a bit of a mess at the moment recovering from, uh, from being critiqued and taking risks and being vulnerable. Um, when, um, when the Disability Pride mural was destroyed and then we had to fight to get it back up again, it, it happened in quite a public way. And I had people challenge me, non disabled people challenge me and say, you know, um, do you really have the right to do this? You know, are you really disabled? Um, are you disabled enough? Have you asked your community if you're allowed to do this? Um, and so, I mean, these are also things that have been, I've been asked for many years because, and as are many people with invisible disability, 80% of people with disabilities have an invisible disability, Um, so it forced me to have to deal with it. So in some ways, it's great. Um, And what I did do was I went back to my community and I said, are you okay with me, you know, leading this? And they were all absolutely yes, um, because they understand. Um, And I will say at this point, I have a lot of privilege in that um, my impairments are not as great as others um, and also they're not... um, they're very different, I have so much more access than I did say 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And for me to not identify as disabled is like saying to my younger self, I don't wanna know anything about you anymore. Or all my friends that I've met over 21 years. So it's sort of really important me to, for me to identify. And my community agreed with that. So how I think you deal with that, or how my advice would be is to go back to the people, when you're getting the criticism, to go back to the people who you know support you, even though they don't yet have a voice to stand alongside you in public, but they can talk to you and let you know that that you are on the right path. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I think, too, I also really try to think about the ways that... uh, culture is built um and the ways that those forces have uh tried to marginalize people yeah i think you know what i mean but i haven't said that right but yeah
6: do you mean kind of being aware of how that marginalization happens yeah yeah
0: how that marginalization happens because it's so easy to individualize it and see that you're the problem actually what i try to remember when it comes to disability, is thinking, remembering the social model of disability. We live in a culture that emphasises believes in the medical model, which says that disabled bodies are wrong and disabled bodies need to be fixed and cured and managed. But the social model of disability, which hasn't yet hit Australia that much, um, is that it's not actually your body that's a problem. Your body is just part of the human diversity and it's actually the structures of society, those stairs, and it's also the attitudes of people that actually prevent disabled people from getting access. So, yes, the social model is what saves me, makes me feel better.
5: I also find a lot of that criticism can come from institutions and, um, and when that happens, I've had uh, similar um, sort of criticism recently and that was because I was working with an institution and um, because if, you know, you don't meet their criteria, then there's, um, you know, if you don't meet their criteria, there's criticism and it may be that it's a work in progress um, and, you know, that can often should be supported rather than criticised. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, like you say, it's, it's good to just go back to your peers and sort of say, was this, is this right or, you know, to get a bit of reassurance because, yeah, making public work can be really tough,
3: <laughs> Yeah.
2: Oh, sorry. Did you? I was just going to say
5: don't if you get a major news article,
4: don't read the comments section.
2: <laughs> Ever. Yeah, thank you. Um just before we throw to um audience Q&A, I thought a fun way to wrap up would be if um you know, if you if what if you could have if there's a site you pass every day or, or some or some site, you know, in the city or beyond that's your dream subversion. If you had unlimited resources and you could just subvert a site, what would it be and what would you do? <laughs>
3: Um, I am currently batting around an idea I, I hope to chase down, but I am constantly kind of frustrated and angry at the amount of space we have in our suburbs, particularly that is either awaiting development or isn't currently making, being made use of in the capitalist system. So there's a lot of um, uh, void space or null space. And what I would like to do with infinite resources, if you have them to offer, um, is to... Uh, buy a truck and kit it up with a whole bunch of play equipment and um, stuff and just drive it around and every uh, now and then just dump it down somewhere and make that a space that people can then um, engage with in a playful way and, and find a sense of belonging in their in their immediate surroundings. So that's what I want to do.
4: Mine's actually really similar because I, I have that feeling particularly around contaminated sites like um, petrol stations um, which are actually have this kind of incredible access to the street because um, because they were designed for cars and so I've always wanted to take over and I've actually even pitched taking over petrol stations because they often sit there for like five to ten years even in, in inner city Melbourne because they're contaminated um, but I've never been able to get uh, interest from the landholders and local government might be interested in it actually because those sites are constantly being vandalised and are an eyesore Um, but yeah this kind of idea of risk really prevents um, developers of those sites from doing things when actually you could do it very safely
0: it's capped with concrete Um, I was going to say I don't have an answer because I can't I don't know but You've inspired me, There's all these spaces. Um, I actually would love to just have, to be, to be built on these spaces, So much, lots of housing, so that so many people with disability who are homeless could find housing, and then when you have housing, which is, uh, I speak from experiences, when you don't have safe housing, you can't speak out and you can't make art. And then all those people can come and join me and we'll do a really big you know, work somewhere.
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm an, I agree. I think public housing with green spaces um, and that are not just public housing with one room and a lounge, but proper public housing with, um, you know, that's sustainable um, and taking over all the about-to-be-developed sites because there's just so many. Um, and, yeah, transforming that to public housing. For sure, with green spaces. Oh. <laughs>
2: Great, thank you so much. I'm just—I uh, want to thank all five panelists <laughs> for being troopers. Um, so <laughs>
0: um,
2: I guess uh, we'll throw it to audience Q and A before we move on to um, the workshop. If anyone has any questions, I can give you my mic.
4: Um. I really, thank you to the panelists. I really appreciated all your ideas and hearing about your practice. Um, Kel kosher's me in parkour. <laughs> full, full disclosure as well. So I'm privileged to have experienced that um, and how open that all is. Um, and thank you for your comments on ownership but and how problematic that is. Can you maybe say something about memory? like? Where your practice, you don't necessarily want to have any ownership or, or, or stake a permanent claim. So we've, we've talked about that. But what, do you have any aspirations towards the memory that you live behind in place or that your work permeates through the community? I have an enormous sense of responsibility. <laughs> because I'm often on sites for a really long period of time and I can get to know communities better than their representation Uh, and I got really sick of leaving and not uh, leaving any of that knowledge behind. I actually now produce documents before I leave and I put one of those books in the library so that the community can access and I give the other to local government and um, I'm finding increasingly that leads to policy changes.
2: Lisa, no, I'm no, no, I'm just enjoying this process. That's, so. that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Is there any other questions? We can always have them in the workshop, but... Yeah.
6: Um, thank you. That was really interesting. And, yeah, all of you are just very interesting to listen to. Um, I was wondering about the idea of embodiment. All of your work seems to, sort of, just because of urban space, be about embodiment. And especially you, Kel, in terms of... Um, I think play has a great sense of embodiment and um, focusing specifically on women in parkour. You know, as you said, it's quite a male-dominated sport, I guess. Um, I guess if you could just talk a bit about that, that'd be great. Thank you.
3: Yeah, that's uh, always been a really important aspect to me. Um, and I think it actually comes, comes into having embodied memories of places as well. Um, because... There is a kind of uh, in the Western canon, I guess, a, a, um, a privileging of uh, knowledge that you can write down, um, and so I could write down how to jump over a thing, right? But that's not going to do you any good. Um, so, and I can, and every everybody. Will always say, I I feel that I have, you know, I love my city, or I have, I feel that I have um, a sense of belonging here. But there's there is something very different and um, intangible about having that embodied knowledge of it, uh, which is difficult to put into, say, a application for funding for the for the sport. So, um, and that is almost a one-to-one experience as well. You won't um, be able to. Uh, i I, i'm I'm sure some people are doing it but you wouldn't i don't believe you'd ever be able to do online parkour coaching so um i do my best to encourage that um connection with uh with an embodied understanding but it's difficult to know if i ever get there (laughs) Um, Michelle de Souteau, um,
4: argues that, uh, just through the act of walking in public space, we push up against capitalism because we, you know, we are placing our foot on the ground and we are not necessarily doing that in a way that is in the flow of capitalism. Um, but I, I, would like to push that further to think beyond pushing against, um, capitalism to think, to push against the other exclusions in society and, you know, the power of me walking, the streets and seeing Larissa in one of her handstands um, as this kind of embodied presence um, that stays there for a long time. The power of women walking in space um, and and saying that they have a right to do that um, on their own, (laughs) safely. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, ephemerally embodying public space is an incredibly powerful thing and, and almost a form of, form of protest. And that's not just my idea that, that you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of theory about that. But what I love about you is that it's also vertical occupation. Yep. Yeah, it, it's not just thinking about that horizontal plane. And that, I mean, that's particularly powerful.
3: Yep.
0: Yeah. Um, I was just, um, I have
2: awful public voice, sorry. <laughs>
0: I was just um, thinking of
2: talking about ideal public space, and we were saying, okay, well, this is a space that has to be private and quiet, or this space where we could play, whatever. Um, And we were talking about it being ideal for everyone. How can it be possibly achieved? Mm. If a person wants to lie under the tree and meditate and sleep, and at the same time, another person wants to play around and being loud, it cannot be... Simultaneously ideal for everyone, so it is not really practically achievable. I think, Uh, either through maybe some sort of structuring. Okay, today this place will be used for meditation, and tomorrow this place, sorry, could be used for discussion or something like that. But I cannot really see how it can be achieved, if anyone. It's absolutely
4: impossible. And you have and groups of people push up against each other. So what is an ideal young young person space is quite the opposite to perhaps a, a young family or, or a middle-aged person um, so what we've actually got to push for is more public space and, and not giving up our public spaces to commercial zones um, you know th- I think that that is the way around this and that's how you create diverse and sustainable public spaces
3: and I would, uh, would also say that they need to be as flexible as possible um, and rather than uh, designing for purpose like I mean, I think the worst possible uh, uh, iteration of that would be: this is the meditation space, and this is the dancing space. If you had, if you were making a public space to uh, make boundaries, um, I, I'd recommend looking at um, the work of Caitlin Pontrella, who's an um, architect and urban um, urban architect in currently in Seattle, and the. Uh, head of Parkour Visions there. But she has a lot to say about the way that we make playgrounds. And often the way that we make playgrounds is to say that is the spot where the children can play. And then that what that means is telling them they're not allowed to play everywhere else. Um, so in my opinion, making... Uh, although public a perfect public space is not possible, it's still worth shooting for. Um, and also... It would be something that is um, as responsive to the needs of the day. And when I say the day, I mean like the day of the week or that exact moment as possible. And then um, there will be uh, border wars or, or skirmishes when people butt up against each other. But um, in terms of designing that space, for me it would be about flexibility and adaptability, theoretically. And also
4: really broad consultation. You know, don't forget the young people. Yeah.
5: Um, I think it is possible with more public space, if you just look here, for instance, and you've got, you know, people over there drinking, I think, (laughs) Um, and people with bicycles there, and you know, it can, it is manageable, I definitely think so, just we need lots of it and more of it, rather than, you know... um, public space being privatised, which nearly happened in Footscray Park just very recently, which was saved, thankfully. But, uh, yeah. Thank
2: you. Are there any? No? Yeah, cool. So we might um, move to the workshop. We'll just move over there. We've kindly got it all set up. Thank you, Raza. Um And we'll, we'll, Zane will talk us through it um, if you want to join us. And there's also really great interactive exhibition next door we'd encourage checking out as well that's on for a couple of hours so yeah great thank you so much thanks again guys. thank you
0: thank you you're listening to an m pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find
5: your podcasts